2: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Lizelle Wellbeing Show, your weekly fix of great chat with industry leading experts, bringing you wellness wisdom you can trust. Now, if you follow me on social media at Lizelle Me or at Lizelle Wellbeing, you will have seen that I recently enjoyed a trip to Scotland. And I have to say, those few days away, walking in the stunningly beautiful highlands and getting out on the water for, believe it or not, seaweed farming has done me the power of good and not just the healing powers of the kelp. Getting back to nature, ditching screen time for sky time is just one of the changes advocated in a new book called Be More Human, which promises to help boost our mental and physical health by reconnecting with the way that we were supposed to live, eat, sleep, breathe and move. The author is natural lifestyle coach Tony Riddle and he is here with me to Day for some practical advice to share on how we can all live now as humans he says we're supposed to live welcome tony thanks liz lovely intro there oh well i'm looking forward to learning great to hear (laughs)
3: about your scotland trip as well yeah i love the sky time over screen time it's just so valuable right Mm
2: -hmm. Oh my goodness. And what a skyline. I was up in the Outer Hebrides and I'd never been that far north, I think, in the UK before. Absolutely stunning. Have you been up there?
3: I ran from Land's End to John O'Groats barefoot. So that's from the most southern tip to the most northern tip of the UK barefoot back in 2018. And Mm. then in 2019, I then took on the three peaks, but didn't drive between the peaks, I decided to run between the peaks. So that's oh. Snowdon, Scarfell Pike, and then finishing at mm-hmm. Great Ben Nevis, of course. So yeah, and there's something about Scotland, there really is. It's like you, every time I hit it, I become incredibly emotional, you know, just yeah. something yeah, about yeah, it, even just imagine. hitting the sign, mm-hmm. welcome to Scotland. And I'd feel <laughs> just my first trip, I just broke down, I started sobbing as soon as I hit the sign, I think. You know, I I also had many miles in my feet at that stage, you know, Um, and for some reason, the more north I went, the more gnarly the tarmac was getting, of course, for my feet.
2: Do you know, I have to just ask you, as somebody who runs the occasional 5K and, you know, I'm usually feeling dead chuffed with myself for that, Yeah. endurance distance running, I could not imagine doing it barefoot. How, what is all that about? I mean, how, why, doesn't it hurt your feet? What's going on?
3: I think first thing to think and there's a study it's um, compliance and stiffness. so let's start with this. So Liz, if I asked you to jump up and down barefoot on a hard surface, which surface would give? Would it be the concrete or would it be you which one has to give? Mm, interesting me obviously because concrete's not 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 going to bend Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly so it won't break. Um, and you will soften so that you don't break. And so we have this amazing ability to become soft. That's what our tendons and all those softening tissues are for. However, if you were to jump up and down on a really compliant surface, then you might find that you're stiffen. So firstly... Like a
2: trampoline. Yes, or even a cushion...
3: Like Imagine like rubber. Let's say a cushioned shoe, mm. for instance, that's quite foam or has air bubbles in it. Mm-hmm you can start to stiffen above it. And a lot of the running injuries that we see are associated with tendon issues, like ITB runner's knee, Achilles problems, planty fasciitis, and they're all the elastic structures. And so we lose some of our elastic potential. The more and more compliance we put between ourselves and the earth. However, when, when we first start this process, because we've been wearing rubberized footwear for many years, um, and also footwear that's quite narrow in the toe box and if you were to grab a pen put your foot on a piece of paper and draw around it you would find Mm. that your toe area of your foot is actually wider than your heel however most modern footwear it's the opposite we're quite narrow in the toe box but wider in the heel itself so there's two things at play there we have this stiffening of the foot in a certain shape so the foot becomes quite rigid and we don't quite understand how to operate what is 26 bones 33 articulations and a combination of like 100 muscles, tendons and ligaments within that foot, as well as 200,000 receptors, right? extra receptors. So much information just in one foot that helps us relay information back to our movement brain to make calculations on how efficient we can become, how soft we can become, how stiff we become and minimize the risk of injury. But the more more information we put between us and the earth, the more it dumbs down that information. But first, you have mm. to rewild your feet. Otherwise, mm-hmm. your feet will beca- are quite stiff and rigid from being in a rubberized shoe. So with rubber, the foot stiffens. With the toe, na- narrow toe box, the foot stiffens in a certain shape. Therefore, when you go to walk on a hard surface or even over stones, it's a bit like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh. Yes. Because you're hitting hard on hard. And until you learn how to soften the foot, break the feet up a bit, Allow them mm-hmm. to become more compliant again. Allow them to feel again. You're always going to experience that ouchy moment. It has to be that way because you have normalized that behavior for your foot. But it doesn't take long. You can make ch- ch- this transformation in such a quick time with feet. Firstly, it's just really to allow your feet out of <sighs> their kind of proprioceptive cages, if you like. And Mm -hmm. just allow them to walk over grass to begin with. And then from grass maybe to the next surface, even sandy beaches, just around the home even. Some people even wearing footwear Mm -hmm. in the home that's narrow. So try and in those environments where it's much easier, of course, and less socially extreme, perhaps. You can get your feet out. but Also play with them. I have have a a number of practices. One's called toga. It's in the book, actually. It's in the Female Human (laughs) book. Toga. (laughs) Yoga, <laughs> which is like this yoga for your feet, and it allows your uh-huh. feet again to get that mobility range, but also that sensitivity. I think that's the language really. It's the sensitivity within the feet. And then, once you have that, then of course, go and explore different environments. And the beauty of different environments, of course, is firstly, we have those extra receptors, and those extra receptors relay information back to our sophisticated movement brain. But also, it's about neuroplasticity and rewiring the brain in a sense experiencing Mm. new environments even through the feet and through those senses then we have grounding but then we also have the biodiversity that amazing biodiversity that's underfoot and there's some incredible studies coming through with microbiome now and the and the biodiversity of soil but we can also receive that through touch right the same as putting your hands in the soil we can experience that through our feet too really absolutely
2: that is very interesting. You are making a lot of sense. I'd never thought about that before. <laughs> as somebody who lives most of her daily life, I have to say, in trainers, yeah, I am conditioning my feet to being encased in that spongy surface. So they have lost, I guess, their sense of supporting me and feeling the environment around me. So w- would I then, would you say just, okay, take your trainers off, go barefoot, walk barefoot around the house, which is easy to do as a starting point. Yeah. Go out on the grass, then just gradually soften. It's almost like, a, is it mind over matter? I'm just telling my feet to um, soften and relax onto the surface? There is there is part
3: of that, of course, but also the feet, if they've become stiff, you, just like doing mm. mobility work, if you're stiff in the hips, you have to mobilise the hips. It's mm-hmm. not enough just to say, I've got soft hips, I have soft hips, my hips <laughs> are soft. You know, sometimes we have to do the work, but yeah. there's some incredible studies there. Now, there's a 2019 study from the University of Liverpool, and they looked at participants, they allowed them to wear foot, barefoot footwear for six months. And in mm-hmm. that study of six months returning back to wearing barefoot footwear, they improved their foot strength by 60%.
2: So what is a barefoot footwear? It sounds like tautology. Yeah, I know
3: it's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? But it's um, it's footwear that's wide in the toe box, but narrow in the heel. So it matches the shape of the foot. So it allows your foot to open up in the shoe. They're also minimal. So there's zero drop. There's no heel. It's just on a mm-hmm. plane, exactly how your foot would rest on the floor, let's say, or on other terrain. Let's not just talk about linear surfaces, because this is about rewilding in a way. And the natural Mm. surfaces aren't so linear and also um with it being minimal it's like three millimeters to four millimeters to five millimeters in thickness that's it so you still get the sensory feedback your foot still understands the terrain and in footwear like that you can even feel stones beneath your feet but of course not to the point where not the equivalent of being completely barefoot when you're just making the transition, so that's a great way of transitioning, is to mm. wear barefoot footwear. But there's also the camp where it could be. Well, you need to also transition to that. It depends. It's individual specific, depending on how stiff and rigid the feet are, even perhaps. But I would say that's. It's not enough just to change the footwear or to go barefoot. I would. I would highly recommend the practices in the book, which are about rewilding the feet, which are about opening the feet up, allowing those mm. joints to articulate. And the bones almost to settle in their true alignment where they would be. Because ultimately, those feet are the foundation. And as that study suggesting, that 60% your foot strength will improve. But also they found within it, 40% of balance improved. So for me as a mm-hmm. parent, my the mind mm. was blown. It was like, well, from a parenting perspective, why would you then put your kids in shoes that were cushioned or had a narrow toe box? Because you're almost... You're taking sixty percent of their foot strength away and forty percent their balance away. Um and, and that was like wow, imagine the physical potential, perhaps, if we if we hadn't had that removed, you know?
2: That is just yeah, that's fascinating. I guess that's the road of unintended consequences, isn't it? As we get ourselves Absolutely. into fashion shoes. I'm just thinking back over time. And of course, the you know the 16th, 17th century courtiers were wearing those very f- finely encased pointy-toed shoes. We've done it ever since then, haven't we, really? Yeah, well, it came in, didn't it? It came in, um, I think it was the nobles,
3: wasn't it? The Persian army were wearing high heels and they were on horseback. So they were wearing them for the heel to go in the stirrup. And our nobles looked... Mm-hmm and saw it as a sign of masculinity, and that's how the high heel came in. At that time,
2: isn't that interesting that it came in through masculinity, the I heal, and now it's. <laughs> and now the ladies have got them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, we someti- them anyway. and we sometimes hear that.
3: Oh, oh no, I, 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 don't, I don't feel the same person without them. Even you know that sometimes that yeah. language you know, yeah. that comes in. So there's even rewilding that behaviour, isn't there? What we, what we perhaps have mm. normalised through fashion.
2: So tell us about yourself then. You know, you, you you say that you're a natural lifestyle coach. Have you always been this way? Have you always been into the living the natural life.
3: <laughs> well, I I, kn- I knew a lot about it, but I wouldn't say I was living it. And part of the story <laughs> within the book is is that. I mean i i was I was born with congenital clubfoot. So what does that mean exactly for people who aren't aware? Um, it means that the feet are rotated in, almost like you'd be on the edges of your feet. Let's say the outer edges of your feet. They're completely turned in. So, if left, I'd be walking around on the outsides of my feet, where on the outside mm. of the ankle, even. And so I had to have those reset in plaster for the first 12 weeks, where I went through a process of every week having to go back. And if I didn't go weekly, then of course it would be an issue with circulation being cut as I was growing, being a bubba. And then I went into casts, into braces, and then eventually they were then it was like a bar with two boots and they would prized the boots open to reset them fast mm. forward a bit of time where we're living um we're living in kind of an urban setting um lots of concrete brickwork local park but lots of addicts in the park and that wasn't safe you're not going not to go to the park kind of language mm. and we had a wreck where we used to go to as kids very young, we'd be out on our bikes, we'd cycle there and there was a train bridge to get to the wreck and we'd shimmy across with our fingertips to get in there and then <laughs> shoes off and yeah. just in the streams and climbing trees. And I, I that's probably punk, that punctuated in amongst the concrete existence was probably the happiest at that time. Fast forward many years and now sitting in a classroom, I struggled in that environment for me. I just spent most of my time tapping, looking out the window, distracted by wanting to be outside, I guess. Fast forward again, mixed up in the wrong behaviours, drugs, alcohol at an early age, mixing with kind of a tribe of influence, but possibly not the best one for me, Mm -hmm. in trouble with the police, escape that, join the army. And then found again that joy of the physicality within that environment, very much like the boy shimmying across the bridge finds himself in nature compared to the classroom and and the concrete setting. So... Eventually, I leave the army. And in that process, found myself a little lost and started drifting back into the same kind of social behaviors that were normalized, of course, um, that Mm. I tried to escape from. And then luckily, a cousin of mine said, look, you're in amazing shape. (laughs) You love being in the gym. You love training. Why don't you look at personal training? And I Found personal training at the beginning. I was very lucky, fortunate to walk into a personal training gym where it was a studio. It wasn't a big gym, and it didn't have all the equipment. It was really about what what you could be doing within that space. So most of my clients were like over the age of forty. It was in a town called Beaconsfield. and so I had forty pluses, I would say, as an age group, age group who had no interest in what my training was at that time, it was nearly, it was pretty much bodybuilding. It was all pushing and pulling movements and t-shirt muscles. And suddenly it was about Mm -hmm. core stability. And lucky enough, the person that owned the gym, she was training premiership footballers at the time. It was a very different way of training. And it was like having this accelerated learning all of a sudden. And I was just Mm -hmm. drawn to it. I was so absorbent to it and just sucked everything in. And then eventually um, started teaching Pilates through that. And I then opened a Pilates studio. Great client base, but I started to see these same symptoms coming in, which was all always lower back. It was always necks. It was always knees. And why were these symptoms there? And um, and as much as the Pilates method was great for it, it, would help with the symptom relief. It just wasn't fixing people one hundred percent. They were still coming in with the symptoms, you know. So there was what was the cause and over time, meeting some incredible practitioners and coaches, um, managed to put a philosophy together that was based around looking at, well, what is it? Well, footwear was one thing, right? The footwear that people were walking or coming to the studio Mm -hmm. in, they drop their shoes off, walk into the space, do this amazing unraveling and deconstructing of that environment that they've just exited from, and then shoes went back on. Then they walk back to the car or walk home and they almost in the back, back in the same state, because of course, all those actions are out if the base of support was out being the footwear. And then I looked at, um, I was lucky enough to meet a coach. His name was Dr. Romanov or professor Romanov. He was a track and field coach in the Soviet era, complete genius who discovered a specific posture everyone went to when they run. And we started to look at it and say, like, Oh my God, of course. And then you looked we looked at indigenous people and we started to see like these natural running people around the world run in a particular posture. And of course they're not wearing footwear. And of course there's something else that they're not doing. And it was sitting in chairs, right? Ah, okay. So what are they do, And then, <laughs> and then it was, are like, oh, they ground living? So there's ground sitting positions. What do they do? Ah, oh, they enable us to maintain a certain posture. So we started to look at, well, that's the physical self, and that's how perhaps there's a there's a movement, there's running is a movement modality. What are the rest of the movement modalities? And then I could see there's running, jumping, there's lifting, there's swimming, there's carrying. And met another fantastic coach called Erwan Lecour, who set up a system called MoveNat, which is about natural movement. And through that, I I kind of applied Nicholas's model of looking at movement. How it looked through our eyes as a say an urban species perhaps of what swimming might look like or running might look like but what if we applied nature again to that and how it, those disciplines would look and then it, it kind of it went beyond movement it's like, "Well, okay so what does sleep look like what does play look like what does food look like what does digestion look like what does what does water look like what does air quality look like and then you can suddenly see all these physical needs almost And then it went beyond that to social needs and spiritual needs. Um, and we set up a gym. There's three of us at the time, three in business at the time we had a gym and, um, it was a railway building, a, um, a London ticket railway building in West Hampstead back to brick tube trains blasting past. It was like such a great feel to it (laughs) when we first fell in, we just fell in love with it Mm. when we first went in the building. Of course, when you first walk in as a moment. And we kitted it out like a 1950s boxing club, but we had a movement philosophy within it, which was kind of what I'm described, but just described to you. And over time, it just became my business. Two other business partners went in different directions. I stayed there, um, should have really listened and left earlier. Ego was fully in it. No, we're going to make this work and (laughs) stayed in there, but was coaching this philosophy and then coaching it to others. And I had other coaches in there. And then one particular day, I'm standing in my boxing gym, and I'm in the boxing ring, like a stage, and I'm presenting to a room of personal trainers, yogis, all all different influence, people that are there just to to suck up information around natural movement. But I put it together as a philosophy, very similar to what's in the book, really, but I just wasn't living it. Mm. So to keep the business in place, I was working 16-hour days. I had a young family. To support that a lot of my old habits were drifting back in you know Mm. alcohol drugs whatever it was it was almost the pacifying that just to help me deal with whatever it is I was going through what I felt I was going through at that time and then a train one of the tube trains blasted past as I'm standing there in the boxing ring and it shook the building but it shook something in me and I had a moment I was like oh my god I'm, I'm a fraud and just in that moment, my life changed. It was literally in like a in one of those sliding doors moments.
0: Wow. In this case,
3: a shaking doors moment. Mm. And I went on a path of, right, you know this stuff, you know it, you're just not living it. And it mm. was in that time was then to rewild all those habits for myself and I guess refining them as well in that process.
2: So is that what you're talking about in the book when it says be more human? In that moment, did you get that spark to be more human? And if so, what steps did you do at the beginning to achieve that?
3: 100%. I, well, firstly, it started with um, there was a breakdown, break, bankruptcy you name uh, it, I was yeah. hit with it, and it was a tough... <laughs> all really... the
2: realities of modern life,
3: yes. Yeah, you know, but at the same time, up until that point, thinking, you know, yeah, I'm successful, I've got this gym, and, you know, I'm working all these hours, and, yeah, and but only really until the train shook the building did I really get to see it. It was like holding up the mirror of truth and honesty, really, to see that. Mm. I then went on the self-searching, meditation, breath work, discovered many modalities um, worked with plant medicine mm-hmm. started to strip away kind of those the layers I guess or the armor at least threw your shoes away I threw the shoes away definitely in that process I um, <laughs> I had one ceremony where it just highlighted maybe that that's these these boots that I was wearing appeared and I, I parked them I kind of had this disassociation from them. And it wasn't until in that moment I actually saw them, was, oh, of course, I need to lose the shoes. And that, that was part really? of that process. So I actually got to see it and realised yeah. then that a lot of that those behaviours, perhaps, that I kept drifting back into were part of that. That dealing with the trauma or whatever it was that I was holding through those experience of those boots, and so letting those go was uh, that that was a huge um, breakthrough for me. And then also mm. through those practices, of course, seeing now when you sit back and you've gone through all of that, you realise, wow, okay, well now this book's here and I'm sitting here. It's like, wow, of course I had to go through all of that, you know, mm. to get to where I am now. And it and it and it happened for me, not. To me, right? That's the cliche of that, you know.
2: Yes. Well, you you say in the book that the modern world has detached us from the way that we're supposed to live. So, how are we meant to live then? And and how easy is it for us to get back to some of those core principles? Yeah, I, I think
3: it's a good big. This is a good question. It's the big message in the book. You know, the book really is about deconstructing those ways of living that perhaps aren't serving us in our everyday environments, and then reconnecting to simple practices and ways of living that enable us to thrive again, that are more in sync with our human biology, that are better for personal and planetary health, that enable us to become again connected, conscious beings that that reach our human potential that's where it is for me that's the whole coaching model for me now and the book is that's what it's centered around really so it's highlighting that it's at the same time not demonizing the everyday environment you know it's not saying go live in a cave go live in the forest because of course that's not realistic but it's also looking at ways of living within those environments that are going to enable us to thrive and it's you know it's how to transform your lifestyle for optimal health happiness and vitality it's really just connecting to ways of living that more in sync with human biology.
2: Mm. Well, I think the past couple of years with all the lockdowns has been truly awful. But at the same time, mm. I have heard that quite a few people have said that it has forced them to slow down, maybe to get out into nature a bit more when we were allowed back out into nature. Are you hearing that too? And, and do you think that it will continue that change? Do you think people are sort of waking up to this perhaps a little bit more now? I think it kind of, it
3: it had like almost a pendulum effect, didn't it? We were seeing, um, we lived in Hampstead for a bit before we moved out to Somerset. And right at the point when the first kind of period kicked in, what, March 2020, mm. and suddenly Hampstead Heath was mobbed. Really? <laughs> yeah. You come in, you couldn't find a place to picnic or anything. It was just like absolutely mobbed. Certain times of day, of course. And it was so wonderful to see, you know. And then over time, over time, it started to change again. And from what I'm hearing, I think, with the working from home community is to start with, it was like, oh, I've gained an hour here and an hour here because I don't need to commute anymore. Mm. But then some structure was there within the day. And then over time, the working day stretched out into probably those times of day when you would be resting or... Um, you might finish your work, go home or go to dinner. And suddenly it was like, ah, oh, I'll do this after dinner or I'll do this after brekkie or I'll do this. So it meant work was stretching right through the day for some. That's the feedback I was getting. So I started to then coach people in looking at the diary more of maybe from an entrepreneurial perspective of oh, there's 24 hours in your day. Let's take eight hours for sleep. Let's park that. and. Mm-hmm. Then let's say there's an eight hour day, let's carve out eight hours. And that might mean four hours here, four hours off, four hours here, but structure it that way. If if possible, of course, if the work format allows it. But it was really to find that rather than allow that working day to just stretch out into areas where you could be out on the heath, perhaps you could be exploring nature. You, And if you're in a city, we sometimes think, well, there isn't any nature, but actually, you know, in London, there's like eight, eight point something million trees. That's almost one for each human to go around hugging, you know?
2: Yes. Yeah. So do you think now that we should stay connected? I mean, if, if we've started this journey, what do you think we could do that could amplify it to really make a difference?
3: Yeah, I have a great practice of this. Well, you mentioned sky time over screen time earlier. Mm. And um, it's a big practice for me that. So we have been labeled as the indoor generation, right? Um, which apparently it's 90 to 95% of our time is being spent indoors.
0: Mm. So
3: let's say five to 10%, let's say two hours, 24 minutes. i spend two hours, 24 minutes spending that outside. Um, If you can set a timer perhaps and try and get as much of Mm. that that time outdoors. And I don't mean in the car or, public transport or in the shops actually outside try and get underneath the bright sky or in the park or in the forest or wherever it is but just try and up your sky time really i think that's a that's a great practice just to remain connected and then of course you can upgrade that by plucking out more natural experiences becoming a bit more of a connoisseur let's say so maybe even journaling your experience, what does it feel like? How does it compare to being in the forest compared to being on the beach or being in an ancient woodland or being in the local park? But try and get off the grey urban linear landscape mm. and just get out mm. into more natural experiences. And the, the studies show that t- within 20 minutes, you can lower heart rate and blood pressure. You know, really? but also if you walk through a forest, you get hit with with fight, fight size, like nature's aromatherapy. And those alone, they're, they're, they're the plant's mechanism. They're antibacterial and antifungal. And when we inhale them, we produce these natural killer cells and that helps us fight virus and tumors even. So there's this- That's under, amazing. Isn't it? So there's this understanding that we can lower heart rate, blood pressure. We can be part of that diversity. So it helps us connect to the fact that perhaps, well, we're not separate from nature, we are nature. Also, if we know our heart rate and blood pressure drops and we know that we can inhale all those amazing phytoncides and terpenes and that aromatherapy, then it's suggesting something, you know, and it's suggesting that when we're there, we're probably at our best. You know, when you asked earlier, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to kind of get back to the way we were? I think that's it. That's the answer. It lies there. That's why all these incredible studies are popping up. There's one in the book I feature about a school, um, It's nurseries, kindergartens in Finland, and they recreate forest floors. So they're still concrete or tarmac-style floors, but they bring in a forest and they lay down a forest floor, and the kids get to interact with that forest floor. And it's like within 30 days of that environment, they find already there's a massive increase in their skin microbiome, the intestinal microbiome, and also the the children's T-cells. And that's just integrating with a manipulated forest floor. That's the experience. That's
2: phenomenal, isn't it? You know? (laughs) Um I'm really blown away by that. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of forest bathing Yeah, and I first came across that when writing about it for the magazine and you know, it was very popular in Japan where you go out and you walk among the forest. But it, to me, it, it was presented to me as something that's incredibly good for our mental health, to see the green and to be among fresh air and to have the sounds of the forest and all of that. I hadn't realised that we were actually inhaling all these positively good extracts that then impact our gut microbiome, which then of course as we know is influencing our immune system as you say our t-cells and Mm. lymphocytes and all of that that's going on inside that's just extraordinary it's a whole conversation isn't it well if you think the Mm. soils
3: are communicating right there's some fantastic Mm -hmm. studies on that now and who's to say that we're not part of that conversation just we've become disconnected from it right you know and i think the more and more we expose ourselves to those natural elements and Mm -hmm. perhaps start to really understand that again we are nature not separate of it who knows where we could take that you know
2: well that is a very good point to pause for a very brief ad break but keep listening because when we come back tony's going to be sharing more of his tips for how we can all be more human and i for one can't wait to hear Mm Well, welcome back. And I'm chatting today with the natural lifestyle coach, Tony Riddle. And Tony, before the break, we were talking about the extraordinary benefit of forest bathing and going out and breathing in all these natural elements. And I have to say, it's it's quite mind blowing to think about the whole 360 pattern of this, that it's not just what we see visually, what we're listening to, the quality of the air that we're breathing, but it's, it's really, you're kind of drilling down into our very DNA with all of this, aren't you?
3: Yeah, I've kind of come to this understanding. We're not just in the outdoor environment. I also bring this in the indoor. There's a chapter in the book it's called Indoor and Outdoor Living because I think, well, there's the microbiome study. We looked at the kindergarten nursery floors and forest bathing that we've mentioned and what the mental impact of that is and lowering heart rate and blood pressure and microbiome and the sensory information that's absorbed as well. It's like a whole conversation. But there's also the indoor environment how can we how can we bring that into into those habitats too and i and i Mm -hmm. often think of you know we all our senses so it's what we see so the more and more we can open up our visual field let's say the more it's associated with being parasympathetic so if you pick up your phone and you're staring at a small screen it's it's like hyper visual isn't it it's like really alert And that's associated with sympathetic, which is like a fight and flight. Whereas when you can open up your whole visual field, I think really panoramic, and we can do that in nature, can't we? If you sit underneath your favorite tree, you can really open up that visual field. That's also associated with parasympathetic, so it lowers heart rate, blood pressure. Then if you bring breathing in, which you can inhale up through the nose and out through the nose, and we get certain tempos of breath, we can work and be more parasympathetic, Then we have the forest that allows that or the woodland or the park or sitting under your favorite tree. So we can really, Mm. you know, ramp things up in that aspect of of what it is to feel or to be more human. But then we can also again, bring that into natural environments. And and what is it? So it's, I feel it's this conversation about organic and inorganic. So I had this conversation in one of the rooms, it's called the bedroom. So imagine you spend eight hours. In one room, and you're breathing in and out, and you're absorbing through all your pores the same experience for those eight hours. And so, mm. for that room and that experience alone, that's where I, I I really feel it's worth looking into that and and thinking right, how do I change the expression of this room so it's more organic? So, inorganic consumption: eyes, ears, nose, skin—you know—consumption as in absorption. Um, will lead to inorganic behaviours and being, right? But if you absorb more organic material, then the more organic the being and the behaviour. So I feel, yeah, it's understanding what works out in nature. And if we're this indoor species of spending 90 to 95% of our time indoors, and for some that can't change, so what can we be doing? We can, well, we can take control and responsibility for that indoor environment, at least. And bring more nature into it and bring more organic kind of materials or even scents or sights or materials that we interact with within those environments, you know.
2: Mm -hmm. And when we're inside, you talk about coming inside from the great outdoors. If we look at movement, for example, because you know, most of us, let's face it, do have to spend a great deal of our time sitting. I'm sitting here talking to you. I've been sitting at my laptop, you know, most of the day. But in the book, you talk about different poses, things like squats, for example, to help open up our posture. Mm. What are the kinds of things that we could do on a practical day to day level to connect us more on on, in this way?
3: Yes, I I think, again, it's looking at um, how it works in nature. And so I've put some studies in there. So there's the Hadza that have been living the same lifestyle for
2: tens of thousands Mm. of years. The amazing Hadza that live on so much of nature. It's extraordinary. Yeah. and We 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 could learn so much from them, can't we? Can't we? And it's,
3: you know, and I think it's worth bringing in this term, like cultural appreciation here, not cultural appropriation, right? It's like this real appreciation Mm. for seeing how it works in nature and how they're thriving by, you know, and, and the same way they've been doing that for tens of thousands of years. So this interaction with the ground, <laughs> yes. like they had to sit for 10 and a half hours a day, just like we sit. But
2: how are they sitting? Again, not on chairs, but not on
3: chairs. So they're interacting with the ground. <laughs> and each one of those positions that they're in on the ground nurtures their posture that enables them to be these amazing, upright, well, just splendid beings, right? That's, that's what's in us. We're innately wild, connected, empowered beings. And if we look at these indigenous cultures, we can see that, right? That's the norm. And so they have these incredible postures. And how is that? Well, there's no chair involved, right? It's interacting with with their body weight and gravity becomes tangible through body weight on the ground. So if we were to stand up, we experience our body weight through our feet, right? If we squat Mm -hmm. straight down and we use a squat, not as an exercise, because the squat. Isn't an exercise; it's a rest position. It's designed to
2: rest. Not the way I have to do it. You know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to get in, in in the gym with my weights. Is, is yeah. that not not the right thing again? Then? <laughs>
3: because that's that's an exercise. But if you look at what the squat is yeah. in nature, it's a rest position. They're, people don't exercise in nature. It's like because life's inconvenient, <laughs> yes. you know. Um, so we have to find in nature. We find you know how can I become more efficient? Minimize the risk of injury for my survival. So we're always moving efficiently and we're always finding ways of living that are going to become more efficient and enable us to thrive in that sense. Right. Whereas if we have. um, So if I'm standing and I squat and I use I think of the squat as a rest position, it's also a pooping Mm -hmm. position. It's also a birthing position. It's a position to eat in. But the moment I'm in that position, my weight hasn't changed. It's still on my base of support being my feet. So there's Mm -hmm. a chemical metabolic cost for holding that shape. When I stand up, there's no change in my weight. It's exactly the same thing. My mind recognizes the same weight. However, when I sit down, my weight is no longer in my feet. Therefore, when I stand up, there's a huge chemical metabolic cost, right? My mind's like, what are you doing? This survival part of my brain's like, I just want to conserve energy and become more efficient. You want me to stand on my feet, which I'm not familiar with for 10 and a half hours of the day. Therefore, I want to sit down again and mm-hmm. choose more efficient ways so there's a mad rush at airports for the chairs there's a mad rush to the mm. plane to the chairs we just can't wait to sit down but really if we just always interacted with the weight through our feet it would be a slightly different conversation i'm often asked how is it you run for 10 hours how is it well firstly it's try and spend 10 hours on your feet just interact with the ground through your feet but there's also there's a posture to that so um my father was a is, was a toolmaker, like a precision engineer, so he's on his feet all day, but he had the most terrible posture. So standing with poor posture can just be just as detrimental as sitting with poor posture.
2: Right, it's I was about, going to ask you if 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 the weight's on our feet all the time. Supposing yeah. we just stand all the time rather than sit all the time. People talk about having standing desks, for yeah. example. Would that be a better thing?
3: Only if you mix it up in in my in my view with ground wrist positions, because it's those ground resting positions that are the prerequisites almost of standing. So if you think of a a baby, a baby moving through different transitions on the ground, before we go near car seats and we go near um, high chairs and all of that stuff, if you watch how a child interacts with the ground, that's how they learn to stand. That's how they learn to to balance this huge weight being the human head above them. And they have the most Mm -hmm. incredible postures. Not one of those children has been to Pilates or yoga. They have amazing posture, right? No one's taught them how to lift weight, how to squat. It's just there. It unravels that way. And yet the environment we go into, suddenly it, it divorces us from that. So the ground rest positions are a way of, of entering that again and reconnecting with it. That's the rewilding of those movements. It's so that we can get that relationship back with interacting with the ground, but nourishing that wonderful wild posture. That's, that's where it's at for me. And then... With that by all means stand use your standing desk but even with your standing desk it's like you can use you can be standing hold the desk squat down one there's this is in the book as well it's called a posture squat in the book and you hold the desk you just squat down but you allow your heels to come up so you're looking to remain quite upright in the upper body but allow your Mm. heels to pop and you can do like a few little bounces at the bottom stand back up five reps of that you're done the same as if you're sitting in a chair and it's unavoidable sitting scenario You're at the office (laughs) and standing desks aren't allowed by your HR department and it's too socially extreme to be on the floor, right? So um, Mm -hmm. slide your chair back again, just hold the desk, two little squats at the bottom, boom, walk off and you're done. Mm
2: -hmm. But
3: if you're working from home, wow, you know, you have this extraordinary position, don't you? Because we're suddenly... Yeah, we
2: can. Yeah, we now have control over that environment. Do you think we should? Do you think we should actually spend our time at home squatting? Not
3: squatting, because there's a number, there's six different rest positions in the book, or six series of sitting positions in that book. So, Mm -hmm. and I would play between those sitting positions and work through those. Um, What you tend to find Liz, is to begin with, because we have to reconnect and rewild some of the patterns and gain mobility, a bit like the conversation around the feet earlier, where the feet can become quite stiff. So at the beginning, it's like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, it can be. So we can play around with that. You can use bolsters or cushions. And there's certain kneeling positions that are like prerequisites of squats. So it's learning those patterns first and then playing with them. And and also just list tuning in. So you'll get little signals. The difference between being on the ground and in a chair is on the ground, you'll get signals to move. And I'd, I'd suggest tuning into those and hearing them.
2: Interesting. And yeah, I could imagine and, that. And the idea mm.
3: is that we keep moving then. And, and that means there's, again, a chemical metabolic cost. So we're literally doing, you could turn an eight-hour working day into eight hours of mobility and strength work on the floor. You don't need to go to yoga. You don't need to go to a movement class. You can be doing that whilst working on Zoom. You could turn the, the camera off and be working out on the floor, moving around and doing mobility whilst you're there. Yes. And they're quite subtle, the shifts in shapes. It's not like um, doing burpees and squat for us. You're just rolling from one transition to the next. Again, a bit like observing a toddler moving around on the floor. And it can get to that, fa- you can become fluid like that. I'm now, I've just turned 47. And we we just don't have any chairs in our house, full stop. And Do you not? No, so we don't have any sitting furniture at all now. We just have, you know, we, still, we have a dining room table, but it's really low. It's a long dining room table. It's quite beautiful, actually. It's long. And we have bolsters, like yoga bolsters, that have buckwheat Ooh. in them. And they're for just sitting on. So at least it creates a dining experience, quite a ritualistic dining experience, a table.
2: Sounds amazing. And
3: then my desk set up, I have a standing desk and I have a low ground desk. And I've just, in the process, I'm developing kind of a, with, with someone, we're doing a chair at the moment, which will allow you to be at office desk height, but still perform all the rest positions at it. So... It enables people within that environment to kind of change that pattern. Because again, it's a bit socially extreme to be getting on the floor in the office, you know?
2: (laughs) I love that. You must let me know when that comes out. Interesting, uh, talking about things like tech and having to be in the office and working. You are a dad. Uh, I find this constant battle. Mm. I, I have five kids of different ages who've grown up with different levels of tech, and it's increasing. You know, my eldest is 31 very different environment to my youngest who's now 12 what's your experience of, of getting your kids off tech and can you give us all me particularly some helpful pointers for that
3: yeah well we now now don't actually have wi-fi in our house
2: oh my goodness there would be a mutiny I know I know but we but uh, <laughs> but our kids are there
3: you know Lola's about to turn 13 Millie's mm-hmm. um, about to turn 11 Saluda's just turned six and Bo is two about turned turn three really they don't go to school, they're unschooled. So they are aware that um, Narnia, do you remember Narnia? Mm. Do you remember the film Narnia? Did you watch Narnia, the film? Um, yeah, I
2: love and, the books, and Narnia, Prince and Caspian. arrives that, and he yeah. hands
3: them all their weapons, or their tools, and he says, um, is it Lucy? He said, this is a tool, not a mm. toy. And so we had that conversation mm-hmm. with Tech, that it's a tool, not a toy. So, the, so Lola and Minnie are well aware that I'm on tech, but I'm on tech because of work. I'm not seen scrolling because and trolling it's a tool. and we have movie yes. nights, so we watch movies and they're well aware that for Millie's obsessed by piano. So she will be on an iPad for piano and is self-taught now piano can play. Most of it, eyes closed. Now suddenly she should be like, Papa, I'm learning green sleeves. And then within three days. I've learned green sleeves, I'm now playing it with my eyes closed. It's phenomenal. But she's learned mm. that by using tech, mm-hmm. but it's a tool. Yeah,
2: so it can be a, u- a useful tool. Yeah. I
3: think it's, it, mm-hmm. it's having that conversation at the beginning and also being totally honest with them and making them aware that, you know what, we have to be very skillful with this. It's, you know, the, do- yes. the dopamine hit of the device that's that's our issue at this moment in time.
2: Yes, I, I agree with you. And that's what it's designed for. It's designed to yeah. have us wanting that hit. I mean, I guess my contribution to the conversation is that I have put timers well on my Wi-Fi routers. Yeah. So at least it, it does get turned off at night at a certain time. And it doesn't come on until a certain time in the morning. So for the teens particularly, they can't endlessly scroll um in yeah. the small hours which i guess is just one concession it's probably not gone far and, enough yeah but that though. makes a huge impact
3: in the evening you know liz that will you know because again yes. it's a saboteur you know it affects our sleep it affects melatonin melatonin mm-hmm. is a huge influence on our whole circadian rhythm but also like an- antioxidant it's anti-cancer properties it regulates our whole digestive system You know, if we were to look at most of the studies around sleep debt that we feel that they're like obesity, diabetes, they're all actually, when you go through the evidence around melatonin, it's all related to melatonin, right? And so if we start to get that blue light punctured in our eyeballs and inhibiting, suppressing melatonin, it's an issue. So I think... If you can, get the tech off the table, even.
2: Tech off the table. That's a great mantra. I'm going to use that. Yeah, tech off the table. And <laughs> get your also... tech off the table. It's not like get your feet off the table. Yeah, tech off the table and also bedrooms. Like, yeah. you know, the bedrooms for yes.
3: know, bedrooming, not Zooming. Reclaim those, mm-hmm. those places.
2: Before we go, can yeah. we touch a little bit on light? Because I, I'm 100% behind you and, I, and I've talked a lot on this podcast and on other platforms about the benefits of turning off tech and getting rid of the blue light at night. But I'm becoming increasingly aware of the importance of sunrise yeah. and daylight yeah, yeah, absolutely. and the changes in the, the infrared radiation, the near-infrared, the lower levels of UV actually going out and physically looking towards the sun at daybreak can you talk to me a little bit about that
3: yeah there's lots well there's lots of evidence around that even the first 45 minutes of the sun and the last 45 minutes you can you know you have to Mm. build up to it but there's some studies there around sun gazing at those particular times the health benefits of that we then have um you know the uv radiation alone is just that practically zero to minimal in the morning, early hours, right? So Mm -hmm. natural light, blue sky light, you cannot get that level of lux, that bright light in your home. It's just not possible. Um, We almost become really sensitive to that blue light at night, but we need an abundance of it in the morning, you know? It's like a complete shift of relationship. And that bright light enables you to firstly dump out sleepy hormones like melatonin, um it then we get cortisol levels a healthy flux of cortisol starts to come in if we can start to think about moving around in the morning as well i have a program of in the book as well around shakes and waves and just waking up that system in the morning underneath the blue sky is that sky time over screen time conversation again which then also brings in this healthy understanding of even dopamine like the the seeking hormone you know in the morning so um there's, I mean, huge, huge studies there around daylight and the importance of it in the morning. But for me, it's really, mm. it sets us up for the day. So that happy hormone or cycle of even serotonin, we need daylight. And we need um, that serotonin to also help them synthesize melatonin for the evening. So we think of sleep and the sleep hormones associated with sleep, but it's also that early morning light that helps synthesize the late night hormone right so which is like a super hormone really if you think about what melatonin can do for us whereas serotonin Mm. is part of that conversation it's 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 just as relevant so bright blue light in the morning yes absolutely but also an accumulation of light throughout the day um i've put some studies in the book as well around sunlight and uv and And also just things like base tans and trying to expose as much as we can to that sunlight, not just eyeballs, Mm -hmm. but there's a fantastic study in there come out of, um, it was heliotherapy with Rolier and they had T it was through TB camps at the time. And they were treating people with TB through light therapy, sunlight therapy, not light therapy, sunlight therapy, and they moved them out on these terraces and bit by bit by bit. Or time over time, building and building, and building like from five minutes up, and then eventually could have them out in that really nourishing morning light, and they were finding the most incredible um, results through healing um, different diseases. But they found once they started using sunglasses, they weren't getting the results. So there's this understanding of the lights, the the eyes' ability to absorb as well, was affected then from wearing sunglasses. So if we have this conversation yes. of we are an indoor species that spends 90 to 95% of our time indoors in artificial light. And yet we might be going out and then wearing sunglasses in the light, the natural light. And that study from Rolia is suggesting that and then we have to really start to look at that conversation of, well, mm-hmm. why are these diseases here? Perhaps why are we suffering? You know, there's sleep is one. That's how we can. heal some of this but there's also sunlight has these healing qualities but we're just not out benefiting from it or seeing it even,
2: you know? Tony, I could chat to you all day and your book is brilliant. Uh, it's called Be More Human. I highly recommend it. If there is one thing, apart from buying your book, that <laughs> anyone listening here could take away, what would it be? Is it ditch the trainers? Is it walk barefoot on the grass? Is it go and look at the early morning sun? If you had to prioritise one thing over the other, I know that's a hard question. I think
3: the... You know, the easiest thing we can possibly do is really breathing, you know, because, again, mm-hmm. w- what if we can't get outside? What if we can't get to the park? What if, you know, I have yeah. a whole day on Zoom today? Yeah, I can be ground living. Mm-hmm. We we can cover that. I think breathing as well. And I have one practice in there. It's called reboot. Um, it's like a reboot on the hour. It's so beneficial. So you could have a post-it note or you could even have a timer on the hour. Yeah um just try and firstly just relax your pelvic floor relax your lower abdomen i'm doing it now and try and find an inhale up through your nose and i say up through your nose not in your nose in your nose is a bit like and up through your nose is like a there's a draw up through the nose and try and take Mm -hmm. that breath into that relaxed pelvic floor lower abdomen belly now the chest try and think about inflating your whole being with your inhale and this for anyone that's listening it takes refinement but that's the beauty of breath you try and think of every breath is a is a is not a personal best it's a present best and try and focus in on refining every new breath because every breath is a chance to start everything all over again right so we can go up through the nose and then either out through your nose if but extend that exhale longer than your inhale so we could be So roundabout, you'd be looking at that's probably four seconds in, six seconds out. But I don't want you to get wrapped up in counting because it's such a distraction. And there's a chemical metabolic cost for that. So just extend the exhale. And by extending the exhale, we lower our heart rate and blood pressure. So if you just try this, Liz, pop your fingers on your pulse, take Mm -hmm. an inhale. And as you inhale, you'll find there's a slight pickup of your pulse. But when you exhale and you extend it, there's a lowering of heart rate for the pulse drops. So the exhale is associated with parasympathetic, really. So by extending your exhales, yeah, you can start to find that calm state again. And that changes everything, because if we're in an upregulated state, we see our environment very differently. All the saboteurs can come in, you know, the pacifying wants and all these things. And also the relationships around us can suffer for that. So just rebooting on the hour means that we, we can see the world through different eyes, really. And again, it's an opportunity to see the world differently, perhaps make a different relationship with ourselves and others. And I would suggest like six cycles like that. So if we were to say they're right. roughly 10 seconds per cycle, that's 60 seconds. It's one minute of your life, One isn't it? minute of, mm. of an hour. Like it, mm-hmm. it, and, and it's so yeah. simple as a protocol that. So I play Mm. with that, really. And it's free. And it's free. (laughs) So Also, the walk in the park is free. You know, being on the ground is free. Moving, sleep is free. Yes, we love it. We have it all inside ourselves to do that. Simply awe-inspiring beings. Tony,
2: you're just great. Where can people find out more from you?
3: www.tonyriddle.com. And there's plenty on there, like workshops, retreats. My 100 Human Experiences on there. Great. and also at the natural lifestylist on instagram
2: there you go the natural lifestylist you have a new follower from me and i'm oh, sure lovely. many more tony thanks so much for coming on i feel like i've learned a huge amount here thank you for being so generous with your time and your knowledge thanks liz it's been great <laughs> Book Be More Human is out now. Well, if you're enjoying the podcast and would like to keep the conversation going, perhaps you're getting back to nature or making changes in your own lives, do get in touch. You will find me on social media at Lizellme or at Lizell Wellbeing with the team. And do please leave a review on your preferred podcast platform of choice. It really does help other people to find us. And as always, you will find more information with links and resources from everything that we've talked about today and beyond over on our website, which is com, And there you can also sign up for the free weekly newsletter filled with plenty of tips for living well, especially with a focus on nature. Natural living. Don't forget for more advice, research, articles, and recipes, there is also our bi-monthly magazine Lizar Wellbeing, which is only available on subscription. So if you would like to subscribe with free PMP, then you can head over to LizarWellbeing.com and follow the links for that. Well, I'll be back next Friday in your ears with another dose of wellness wisdom you can trust. So until then, go well, have a great week. Bye-bye. The well Wellbeing show is presented by me, Liz Earl, and is a fresh air production with thanks to my producers, Ellie Smith and Chesi Bent. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,